as the uh, as the iPad fires up here. This will be a, a study that, uh, in parts, will be very familiar to us. Those of us who've grown up on the biblical stories about Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, the fiery furnace, the lion's den, the statues, um, Nebuchadnezzar going crazy. Those are things I grew up with, and, and many of you did as well. So part of it is, is certainly going to be familiar. There are parts, though, that are, that are confusing, <laughs> the prophecies in the, in the last six chapters. And that might be a little bit new for some of us as well. It's a great book. Daniel is considered a prophet, rightly. Um, Jesus called him a prophet, and I think uh, in a, a different word, in a different sense, I think we will all profit from uh, this study. So I, I want to begin with kind of an introduction this morning, but also as I was uh, doing some prep work, it seemed pretty clear that one and two really, verses one and two of chapter one, really do set the stage for the whole book. This is so often the case with biblical books, and I, I don't want to gloss over it. So it helps to, to do an introduction, but it also helps to, to flesh out what's being said in verses 1 and 2 of the first chapter and, and to kind of get, our, get ourselves oriented in the right direction as we get into this book. All right, so uh, Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Let me read this. The very word of the living God. <clears throat> In the third year of the reign of Jeho- Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. So ends the reading of God's holy, infallible, and errant word. May he write it upon our hearts here this morning. Make it productive and fruitful in our lives. Let's go before the Lord in prayer again as we come before his word. Our Father in heaven, we pray your blessing now that you would speak to us as we come before your word. We ask that you would fulfill your promises that it would go out and not return to you void, that it would accomplish everything you purpose for it, that it would be successful in the things for which you send it. We pray for us that you would pour out your Spirit in us to open our eyes to see, to open our ears to hear what you have for us this morning. And in doing so, make your word a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. It is our desire to walk according to what it teaches us. Father, we ask that you would do this. In the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, as I was noting, we have different levels of familiarity with different parts of the book of Daniel. And when you hear about Daniel, the person, the, the prophet, this book in the Old Testament, when you, when you think of Daniel, when you hear of Daniel, what, what's the, the primary thing that comes to your mind? The image, the thought, the, the idea And I think it's different for different people, (coughs) one or more of these different things. For some, it's the stories, like I said, those great stories that many of us heard growing up in the church. For me, it it seems like every year there was a progression, and we always got to Daniel, and we always had the same stories. Daniel and his friends refusing to eat the king's food. 
Daniel interpreting visions and dreams. The three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, facing the fiery furnace. Daniel in the lion's den. Great, wonderful stories. And as kids, we eat them up. They're fantastic. Those stories in the first six chapters of the book. Stories that encourage us to, to be like Daniel. Dare to be like Daniel. Be brave. Stand up for your faith. And there's a lot of truth in that lesson. Daniel is a good example for us of someone who, in the face of of real present danger, refuses to back down on his faith, refuses to compromise despite the apparent consequences. There is a lesson there for us, and it's worth remembering. Some of us, it's the prophecies. Some of us really get into the prophecies in the last six chapters. How they describe the rise and fall of kingdoms, real kingdoms in real history, real people, real events. And as you study them and see the connections, your mind is is blown. (laughs) It's just incredible to see how God's prophecy is so incredibly accurate. And then you get to the 70 weeks. (laughs) What in the world does that mean? And we spend lots of time trying to figure it out. What do those 70 weeks mean? How do they predict or relate to the future? That was my early adulthood after I got over the stories phase. And it, it's, it just seemed like something that everybody had to understand. When are these things going to take place? And how are they going to happen? And what do all these signs and symbols and, and different things mean? And that's a worthwhile endeavor, too. We should understand and try to apply and interpret God's word. But there are difficulties, and and it can be confusing. And those seem to be the two common views of Daniel, either the the love of the stories and the example of Daniel, or the love of the end times prophecies and the desire to figure things out. But i got to tell you, as I get older, there's another theme from Daniel that's emerging more and more. I think it's partly because I'm just beginning to feel my age a little bit, or a little bit more. More aches, more pains. It takes longer to recover from sickness, from injury, from just working out too hard. I feel my mortality more. Death is coming, and I know it. It's closer, much closer than it used to be. And that might sound morbid. It's not meant to be. But it's just the reality of getting older. Those of us who older are older, we, we, we're just confronted by that reality. And, you know, by God's grace, I've got, humanly speaking, another two or three decades on this earth. But with age, those two or three decades get a whole lot harder than they were in the first two or three decades. And so eternity, the new heavens and the new earth, just begins to look more and more attractive as time goes on. More and more desirable. Christ, come quickly. And it's not just my own personal struggles. It's looking at the world around us. The world around us stinks. The popular phrase is going to hell in a handbasket. Whether that's true or not as a description, it, it looks pretty bad nevertheless. The world around us is full of sin and and sorrow. 
terrorist attacks that we all saw and read about this week, persecution of Christians, brothers and sisters in jail, being beheaded. You might have missed it in the heavy news about the attack in France, but there was another attack on Christians in Nigeria. A whole village wiped out. A whole village. And then in our own culture here at home, just the increasing vulgarity, the increasing greed, the increasing arrogance, the meanness, the vileness, the promiscuity of our society. And I I look at these things and I'm just ready for something better. I'm ready for something better. I feel increasingly like an outsider in my own country, in my own culture. That's a weird feeling to have. But as I look at Daniel, I think that's incredibly fitting. What is Daniel? He's an outsider. He's an exile. He's a foreigner. A Jew living in Babylon. There's a a, a vivid reminder of that in our text, I think, There's all sorts of theories people have as to why this happens. This is one possible reason. Many of you may know this already, but in chapter 2, the original text switches from Hebrew to Aramaic. stays in Aramaic all the way to the end of chapter 7, when it switches back to Hebrew. Aramaic is a cousin of Hebrew. It's kind of like, you know, Spanish and Italian or French-related languages, but not the same. And Aramaic was the English of its day. Everybody spoke Aramaic. You want to do negotiations, you speak in Aramaic. I think it's interesting. Chapter 1, Daniel and his friends are in Israel and they're taken to Babylon where they're going to be instructed for three years on the history and the language and the customs of the Babylonians. Chapter 2, now they're in public service. And where does it switch to Aramaic? right there, when their life changes. Continues that way through chapter 7, which is the first of the prophetic passages, but it's in chapter 8 where we have the rise of Persia and Cyrus and the decree to go home. And what does it switch back to? Hebrew. I just don't think that's a coincidence. But in any case, there's this idea the language is different. The food is different. The customs are different. The history is different. Daniel's an exile. He's an outsider. And I can't help but think, doesn't it feel that way to be a Christian in America today? Doesn't it feel like we're outsiders now? Exiles in our own country? Not welcome in the public arena? Our views people aren't even interested in. And so, in some ways, we exile ourselves with our own schools, our own movies, our own books, our own music. And so Daniel is this great book that I think helps us explore, if not answer, a very powerful question. And that is, how do we as Christians live as what seems to be exiles in a foreign country. Daniel, I think, is going to help us with that. 
Now these are lessons we'll learn as we go through Daniel in the coming weeks, Lord willing. We'll look at Daniel as a, as a person, his three friends, helpful practical advice that we'll get from them, how to live our lives. Other lessons from the prophecies, but there's another lesson that's woven through all of this, through the stories about Daniel and his friends, through the prophecies as well. There's another important actor in this story. God is at work in the book of Daniel. He's the one who protects Daniel and his three friends. He's the one who humiliates the great Nebuchadnezzar and later King Belshazzar. He's the one who causes kingdoms to rise and fall. He's the one who determines the course of history. We can't forget that very important reality that's at the core of the book of Daniel and weaves in and out of everything that's going on that we will read. God is at work. God is in control, and as much as anything else, that is the message of Daniel. God is at work, and God is in control. And that is an important and central theme that's made clear in the opening two verses. Hear them again, and listen for God at work. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Who's really at work there? The Lord's working there. He gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand of the great king Nebuchadnezzar along with some of the vessels of the house of God. I want to look at what's going on there. Look at it in a little bit more detail. More there, I think, than what we see at a first glance, at a first reading, and then consider some lessons for us. So let's, let's work through the, the text a little bit here. There's a lot of gods and there's a lot of kings in Daniel. <coughs> but there's one God and one king Overall, and that's what we're going to see. So, as we get into the book of Daniel, just as a little bit of preface, the book of Daniel is great at telling us when things happen. Daniel says over and over, In this year of that king, I was doing this, (laughs) and such a vision came to me, or such an event happened. And we can easily date the book. It covers a period from 605 BC to 537, 536 BC. A good almost 70 years, which is not coincidental either. <coughs> it covers the period of decline, the last years of Judah, and then its exile to Babylon. This is the fulfillment of God's prophecy, excuse me, <coughs> that he gave them through the prophet Jeremiah. And it begins with a very precise date, the third year of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. And we read about him in Chronicles, Second Chronicles 36. That third year is 605 B.C. That's a famous date in world history. Not because of this event. (laughs) Historians remember it for another kind of course-changing event in history. 
the Battle of Carchemish. Pharaoh Necho and the Assyrians defeated at the Battle of Carchemish by who? A young prince, son of a king named Nebuchadnezzar. This marks the turning point in history when the Assyrian Empire and their allies in Egypt declined and went away, basically, for a period of time. And Babylon rose as the power, a world empire, of that era. While Nebuchadnezzar was out campaigning, his father died and he became king. The records are unclear about exactly how he attacked Jerusalem. Naturally, they're focusing on the Battle of Carchemish. That's the big victory. But he's in the area, so why not swing through (laughs) Palestine, the Promised Land? And it's apparent from a couple different readings uh, that we have that he did. We have it, of course, from Scripture that he did. Not much of a siege, probably, but he comes up to Jerusalem. He threatens it. I think there was probably a rather quick surrender. That's, I think, how the Bible reads. And so in 605, some of the young nobles and some of the vessels, some of the articles of the temple of God are taken to Babylon. Young men who are going to be trained in the ways of the Babylonians and serve Nebuchadnezzar. We'll get to that more in the coming weeks. The vessels that were described in verse 2 as taken from the temple of God are then taken to Babylon and, and put where? In the house of the Babylonian God, in his temple. Wow. That's incredible. So key things going on in these verses. Jehoiakim is defeated. It's important who he's defeated by, Nebuchadnezzar. The temple vessels are taken, but they're not just taken. They're placed in the temple of a foreign god. I want to look at each of those things as quickly as I can here this morning. We know from our reading, Jehoiakim, like those before him as a king, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. Just part of a succession of kings in the history of Judah, the southern kingdom, that should remind us of what we saw in Israel in the northern kingdom when we were going through Hosea. One king after another, a rapid succession of evil king after evil king after evil king, failure after failure, capitulation to foreign nations, subjection to Egypt, and then when Babylon rises, subjection to Babylon. All of this a consequence of their sins. The king's sins, but the king's leading the people into sin as well. The king's not following in the ways of David their father. They not only tolerate the worship of false gods, but support all sorts of abominations, even going so far as sacrificing their own children. The Bible repeats the criticism of the sin of Manasseh. And we understand that it was continued by those who succeeded him. So when Nebuchadnezzar comes up against Jerusalem, this is God fulfilling his promise. God fulfilling his prophecy. If you abandon me, if you break my covenant, I will send you into exile. And Jeremiah has been speaking. You're going to go 70 years into exile. Don't resist it. Guess who the popular prophets were? 
God is going to come to our rescue. God is going to save us. God is going to prosper us and make us wealthy. Sound familiar? So in 605, it's still 18 years until the final defeat and destruction of Jerusalem in the temple in 587 B.C. But Judah's destruction is in motion. Nebuchadnezzar is going to come twice more, and without a doubt, the destruction is going to happen. Exile is going to come. 587. 70 years are going to pass, 517, until the temple and the city is rebuilt. So Jehoiakim, he's just another one in a, in a long succession, a sad succession of evil, wicked kings. But an example of God doing to him exactly what he said he would do. God is in control. God's plan is being accomplished. So what about Nebuchadnezzar? A great king. Again, campaigning in the west of the empire when his father dies and he becomes king defeats the Assyrian-Egyptian army at Carchemish, goes plundering through that region. Known for these stories in Daniel, known for what he did in history, known from the archives, the clay tablets that we dug up and resurrected. He's known for what he did in building up the city of Babylon, digging canals, building palaces, building buildings, the famous Hanging Gardens, one of the seven wonders of the world, attributed to Nebuchadnezzar. He's a great king. He's a powerful king. He rules over a vast, vast empire. He's a successful king. Battle after battle after battle, he wins. He builds and builds and builds. Building is always important. Nebuchadnezzar is a king who lets his success... (laughs) Go to his head. And what we're going to see repeatedly in the stories of Daniel is Nebuchadnezzar brought low. Nebuchadnezzar humbled before the Lord God of Israel to the point where even Nebuchadnezzar has to acknowledge the God of Israel is the God of gods and even proclaim it to all the people. Nebuchadnezzar may be doing great things and history may view him as a great God, but the Bible sees him as a tool in the hands of God. Nebuchadnezzar came up against Jerusalem. He took the vessels, but the Lord gave Jehoiakim into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. Nothing is happening without God's planning it and permitting it. What about the vessels? The vessels, the articles taken from the temple, probably cups and and forks and plates and different implements and items. There were many, many, many of them. But that they're taken from the temple is is an incredible sign to the people of Israel. God and his favor is leaving us. These precious gold, silver implements, dedicated, set apart, made holy, sanctified for the holy use of serving in God's temple are taken, profaned, This is evidence of God's judgment on his people. And it's part of the judgment, again, that God had promised going back to Hezekiah. We think of Hezekiah as a good king in general. But Hezekiah is a little bit of a, he's a, little bit of a bumbler, to be quite honest. 
God saves him from his enemies in a miraculous and powerful way. And the very next year of his reign, ambassadors come from Babylon, which at that time is still kind of a small, weaker uh, nation. And what does he do? He shows them around his palace and takes them through the treasury of the temple and shows them all the gold stuff that he has. <laughs> Dummy. And Isaiah comes to him and said, what did you do? Well, I showed them all the stuff. And Isaiah pronounces a judgment from God. This wealth of yours, this wealth that you see in the temple, along with your own sons, will be taken to Babylon. And you know what Hezekiah's reaction is? Eh, all right, as long as it doesn't happen in my lifetime. I have peace. It's a foolish reaction. It's a foolish attitude. But here this visit planted a seed decades before among the Babylonian officials. There's gold in Jerusalem. There's gold in that there hill. And it's ready for the taking. Hezekiah foolishly makes the city and the nation and the temple itself a target of the enemies of Israel. And now the judgment of God is being fulfilled in the time of Jehoiakim. Some of the vessels, and we'll see some of the young men, the nobility, taken into exile. Again, God is in control. God executing the judgment that he promised that he would do. <coughs> and then the last little thing, Nebuchadnezzar does something that's very common for that time. He takes those vessels and he puts them in the house of his own God. Why? Well, one, to thank his God for the victory. Here's some tribute. Here's some offerings to show my gratitude for giving me victory over my enemies. But there's another reason. It shows the superiority, he thinks, of his God over his enemies' gods. That we can go in and take their stuff and put it in the temple of our God means our God is superior. And there's a symbolic thing going on as well. Now these vessels set apart for the use of worshiping this other God, now are going to be used to worship a foreign God. There's a, a symbolic way in which they're trying to say, your God now serves our God. Our God is superior. In fact, your God participates in the worship of our God. Kind of cheeky. And in this case, it's going to turn out to be a huge mistake. Again, throughout the 70 years of of exile, God is going to show over and over, repeatedly, that he's the one who's in control. That he is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the King of kings. The Babylonian king might have defeated the Judean king and all sorts of other kings of the earth. But God's going to show them over and over again. There's a true king who reigns above all. And the kings of the earth are his servants. They do what he decides. Nebuchadnezzar, again, is going to be forced to admit this. He's merely an instrument of the true heavenly king. The Babylonian god may have temple vessels in his house, but when the king brings them out to celebrate, he's condemned. And Babylon falls immediately. 
the false god might have the true god's vessels in his house, but there is a god of gods who does not need gold vessels, does not even need a house to remain god of all, the one who everyone should serve, the one whom everyone should worship. What we'll see repeatedly in Daniel is that these foreign conquerors, Babylonian, Persian, Greek, and those who follow, have to submit and acknowledge the Lord God to be the true God. And some of them, even Cyrus, as we saw at the end of Second Chronicles 36, issues a decree acknowledging God to be the true God. So some quick lessons from these things this morning. The first thing repeated already God is in control. Don't ever forget that. God, it is God who determines the paths of men and of kings and of nations. Not Nebuchadnezzar. The Lord gave Jehoiakim into his hands. The Lord did this. The Lord is at work and the Lord is always at work. It's too easy for us to think of God as distant, as remote, up in the heavens somewhere. Out of our own complacency or laziness or just forgetfulness, the busyness of life, we start to to think and act like God is somewhere out there and, and fail to have that constant, continual awareness that God is with us, that he's for us, that he's sovereign, that he's in control and that he's always in control of all things. We may not know exactly what he's doing or why he's doing it, or how or when, but we know that he's in control and that everything that he does is good and for our own good. And that, there, that should be enough to give us some comfort. And that's behind a lot of what's going on in Daniel. If you look at Daniel and his three friends, read the stories, they don't do what they do for reward. They don't do it for recognition. They, don't, they aren't expecting a miracle, to use a common term today. They do what they do out of simple faith, knowing that the Lord is sovereign, that whatever happens is a good part of his good plan for them and for every single person involved. They trust God. They trust his goodness. They trust his plans. Their attitude is, if I die, I die. If I live, I live. But they will not compromise their faith, their trust in God. And so as we go through Daniel, remember, you know, we're faced with choices in our own lives. Typically not the kind of dire choices they are faced with. Nobody's threatened to throw me in a lion's den. I don't think any of you have been threatened with that. Or a fiery furnace. Or some of those other things. Some are around the world. We hear about them, we read about them. But nevertheless, we do face challenges to our faith, and they're, they're actually much more subtle to engage in sinful behavior with others, our speech, our actions, to fit in, to be liked, not to be made fun of. We laugh at the wrong jokes, we sing the wrong songs, dance the wrong dances, watch the wrong movies, read the wrong books. Did you know this book that's being made into a movie, Fifty Shades of Grey, about horrible, terrible sexual practices is a best-selling book among evangelical married women. 
They get together in book clubs and read about it. This is what we've become in the church. Do you feel like an alien? Do you feel like an exile? When these things come up, will we refrain? Will we not participate? And will we do it for no recognition, no reward, no miracle, but simply because our faith in God is more precious to us and our trust in Him is secure? Subtle temptations, subtle challenges. Sometimes it's actions, sometimes it's just the circumstances of life that cause us to doubt God. The financial distress that can come upon us. Diseases that we fight with. Sickness. Broken relationships. Fights with, fights between husband and wife, between parent and child, between brother and sister. Can't find a job. <laughs> or the job I have is lousy and I can't stand it. I'm miserable. My car keeps breaking down. My children won't, re- won't listen. They rebel. My parents don't love me. I don't have any friends. The circumstances of life can get us down. Where is God? Where is he for me? And we like to think, those of us in those situations, boy, if a, if a lion's den came up, I'd be a Daniel. I'd dare to be a Daniel. If a fiery furnace came up, I'd stand up. I'd go right in there. But you know what's harder? Facing those challenges of day-to-day life, the doubts. They challenge us. Do you really believe in God? Do you really believe in His sovereignty? Do you really believe He's in control? Do you really believe He's working all things for your good? If you do, then don't let the circumstances of life weaken your faith or your trust in God. Mourn. Be full of sorrow. That's natural. But do not let go of your faith. The temptation for the citizens of Jerusalem and Judah, the Lord's been defeated. Another God has come in and taken the vessels of our own God's temple. Should I worship that God? Should I serve it? There's a similar temptation for us. Because when we face difficulties in life, hard choices, we look around and we see, well, other people aren't having this problem. What did they do? How did they fix it? And let me tell you, (laughs) next time you're shopping, look at the magazines. We all do anyway. Look at the headlines. Look at the, the cover. Ten ways to do this. Five recommendations. Five tips. Eight things for whatever. Magazines and newspapers, TV commercials, preachers, TV preachers, internet articles, they all proclaim they have the answers for how to make your life better. Better job, better sex, better hair, better skin, better finances, better health, more popular, better relationships. But don't fall for those solutions. Because what they really are foreign gods, temptations to look to something else for our happiness and our joy and comfort in life. They're false idols. We'll face the fiery furnace. But boy, if someone's got tips on how to get the gray out of my hair, sure, why not? How to make my wrinkles go away. 
See, Judah needed to remember who the Lord was, and they had forgotten. They needed to remember the God who had brought them out of Egypt and gave them, to the, gave them the land that he promised them to give, the God who repeatedly saved them from their enemies, the God who gave them David, a wonderful and great king, the God who promised that if they rebelled, he would punish them and send them to a foreign country. They forgot that. Now God is doing exactly what he told them he would do. He's also promised to bring them back from that foreign land, to return them to himself. Now is not the time as exile is threatened to turn away from God. There are promises still to be fulfilled. Similarly for Christians, we need to remember who the Lord is. The God who rescued us from our slavery to sin. The God who leads us to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. The God who gave us Jesus, his own son, our savior, our king, our David live and die and rise again for our salvation. The God who saved us by his grace, made us citizens of his kingdom, promised to take us to that better country when Christ returns. We may live in a foreign land. In fact, I think we do live in a foreign land. Peter puts it this way, that we are sojourners in exile. But we do not have to submit to its ways and follow after its false gods. Remember your God. Remember your Savior. And trust Him. If there's a theme or a summary that we could pick for Daniel, I, I think I'd go to Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Those well-known verses. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. Do you think Daniel knew that? I think it's patently obvious. Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, did they know that? Absolutely. This is what Daniel did. He trusted in the Lord his God with all of his heart. Whatever the circumstances, whatever the outcome, whatever the future might hold, good, bad, indifferent, unknown, this is what we're called to do. Trust in the Lord our God and live life continually, constantly trusting in him, knowing that he will direct our paths through the highs and lows, through the good and bad, through the ups and downs, even through the valley of the shadow of death. The Lord your God is with you. He is sovereign. He's in control. He is working all things for your good, no matter what happens. Remember the words of Job. Though he slays me, yet I will trust in him. Daniel did. His friends did. Do we? Do you? If not, will you? That's the question of the book of Daniel. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your sovereign control of all things, that you are King of kings and Lord of lords, that you govern, govern all things according to your will, according to your purpose, that all of mankind, that all of your creatures serve you in the way that you have foreordained that they should. We often, (laughs) because we are of limited mind and limited capability, we often do not understand what you are doing or why you are doing it, and so we ask that you would increase our faith. Our faith is little. Our faith is small. Increase our faith. 
increase our trust. May we be content in all situations and in all circumstances that you bring about for us. Father, we cannot do this on our own. This is an unnatural kind of attitude and an unnatural kind of behavior. It can only be brought about by your grace, by your mercy working in us, by the power of your Holy Spirit. And so we ask that you would pour out that grace and mercy upon us, pour out your Spirit upon us and in us, so that we might live the way that you would want us to live. Again, Father, none of this is possible except in and through Jesus Christ. And so we claim him, and we acknowledge him, and we pray all of these things in his name. Amen.